Hey, this is Tommy Phillips, pastor of Watermark. Uh, first off, thank you all for listening. I know a lot of you are out there, uh, not in Tampa, and you are listening from afar, wherever you are in our country or in the world. I want to thank you for listening, first off. And second, I wanted to offer you guys an opportunity to give as well. Um, people reach out to us and are asking how they can help. Um, this is a simple way. Um, we're a, a relatively young church, and we are self-sustained, and things get rather expensive. So if you, uh, if you are interested in helping us out by giving, our website is watermarktampa.com slash give. You can go there to give, or you can just text the word give to 904-474-8062. Thank you very much. Grace and peace. The scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 12, 15 through 30. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they thought, or they said, It is only by Bezlebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew that their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he, will, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Bezlebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you. That was a huge passage to read. I appreciate it. Um, turn on number one for me, the lights. And uh, okay, <clears throat> this may, um, I'm not going to cover everything here today. I'm going to cover the parts that I think are important and I'm going to leave some for you to read yourself and to ponder and think about. Um, there is, I'm going to do a little um, Furniture rearranging while I talk. Yes, no, this goes here. That looks nice. Does that look nice? That looks nice. Okay. Um, okay. <clears throat> so the passage starts off really interesting to me. Um, <clears throat> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put up this passage right here because we started right here aware of this. I'm actually going to back it up to the previous verse because there's something that happens that people connect, um, that causes people to connect these two things together, and it even has affected the translation. Um, in verse 14, it says, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Um, and then it says, aware of this. Um, and the word there is, uh, here, I'm just going to put it up here. The word there is, is, is genosko. Everyone say genosko. All right. So that, all this word simply means is knowledge awareness. It means 
It means um, had to have knowledge of something. Um, oftentimes we connect this passage with the one that came before it. However, Matthew has separated them, completely separated them. Um, in the ancient, okay, so in the ancient, I'm trying to figure out how the best way to say this. In the ancient world, ancient Greek writings, they didn't use punctuation. They didn't use paragraph separations. It was all capital letters. Imagine writing a par- like a whole paper and it's all capital letters, no spaces, the whole thing. And, and it's just, and so we are now left with the task of separating these things and dividing them up. Matthew is divided into about 15 or 16 verse sections because that's how many will fit on one papyri before you turn the page. So the previous section has ended. Um, and aware of this is not necessarily connected to what is before it. It's important for me to explain this to you because so often I hear this passage described as this. The Pharisees were plotting to kill Jesus, and he, he was very afraid, and he ran off and told everyone. Um, a large crowd followed him, uh, and he warned them not to tell others about him. They're going to kill me. Don't tell them I'm here. Right? And that's how we sort of interpret this. Um, <clears throat> that's not like a useful use of the, of, of the, sort of the Greek text. These things are separate. Uh, the word gino, uh, ginosko or ginomai, depending on like what translation you're using, is um, it just simply means knowledge. Having knowledge, he decided he, he, he left and he was healing them and it told them not to tell anyone. There's a particular thing here happening that a lot of theologians have written about called the messianic secret. The messianic secret. Um, And you'll see this all through scriptures. I'll show you some instances of it. What happens is Jesus um, tells people constantly. He's constantly telling people, don't tell anyone who healed you. Right? Um, Don't say anything. Don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. He says this kind of stuff to people. Um, So I am going to sort of push back against the interpretation that Jesus is hiding because he's scared. There is something wildly different happening here that is very important that actually connects this to the next passage instead of the one before it. Um, And so, so basically, in order to understand this, uh, you you have to get into the mind of the original reader as as I always talk about. So in the first century, there were a lot of people claiming to be, and I've talked about this before, a lot of people claiming to be messiahs around the time of Christ. Um, they were traveling, they call them messianic figures. Mess- Messiah is simply one that means anointed one. It was, it was a Jewish way of saying king. This is our new king, okay? A guy would rise up and say, I'm gonna be king. Um, and it would never go well um, because Rome already has a king, believe it or not, and that king doesn't take kindly to people calling themselves king, and so this king kills that king. Um, <clears throat> so, Let's, let's talk about a few of these. I've talked about them before for those of you who weren't here or those of you who have forgotten. Uh, here we go. I'm just going to throw a list up here. Um, I'm going to work through it a little bit. Um, Athrongus in the, in the year three. Um, so this guy was a regular shepherd. Um, a lot of these guys, they... So several things about the king that would rise up. First off, the king would be like David, a Davidic king. Um, technically, this meant he's from the lineage of David, but oftentimes people felt, well, I'm like David. I could be Israel's king. Now, this guy, Athrongus, um, he was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Maybe I could be king. Rises up, gets some followers and says, I'm your new king. Becomes like a messianic figure, travels around preaching, teaching, saying, it's time for us to take back our land. And lo and behold, the Romans kill him. String him up, okay? So, uh, the next guy was very famous, Simon Bar uh, uh, Simon Barcoba. Now, 
Um, this was after, this was more second century, um, but it basically, they, he founded this short-lived uh, Jewish state, uh, this area, he called it the Jewish state. Um, and then there was a second Roman Jewish war and he was, him and all his followers were killed in this time. Um, so there's, there's a couple more here that you can read about um, in ancient literature. You can also read about them in the Bible. They are mentioned in here. Judas the Galilean in the year six led a revolt uh, during the first Roman census. Uh, Rome is like, hey, we want to know how many people we have so that we can raise taxes. And the, the Jewish people were wildly against taxes. Um, and they didn't believe that they should be ruled by Rome, so they didn't want to pay taxes. And they're like, no, we're not going to take part in your stupid census. And so they rise up and lead a revolt. So the guy goes into battle, and all his, all his followers like, left him when the Romans came marching in, and they killed him. Um, and then the next guy, uh, Theudas, uh, in the year 46. Um, this guy is actually mentioned in the Bible, uh, as well as the other guy. So I'm going I'm to read you a passage of scripture from Acts chapter 5. If you can't see it, I'll just read it to you. Um, so what this is... Um, this is a Pharisee talking and the Pharisee has come up to the followers of, of, of Jesus that are left after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. They're planting churches. So they are still following their Messiah. Okay. And the Pharisees come up to these guys and, and here's what they have to say. Uh, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him and he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean, up there, uh, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So there's a pattern. Now, the question is, why are so many people rising up and saying that they're the Messiah, that they're Israel's new king, and going to war and leading revolts against Rome? Uh, It's very simple. So... um, Several things had happened by this time. So this is a, this is a painting of, um, um, uh, by Francesco Hayes of, of sort of the rendition of, of, the, of the slaughter of AD 70, the destruction of the temple that the artist has in their mind. Um, the proportions are wildly off. That, that <laughs> the, um, the, 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 the place where you do offer the sacrifices, was, was the altar was not this big at all. But... Um, nevertheless, it was a terrible time. This happened because they led a revolt against Rome. They had an uprising. Someone else claimed to be the king, and this is what happened. Now, um, the reason so many people are revolting in this time um, is, is there's several reasons. Um, number one, there was this prophecy from the book of Daniel that says, uh, that basically says, 70 weeks of years shall pass before your Davidic king will rise. Okay? That time, they had done the math. It was in the time of Christ that they were waiting uh, all that time. And someone, the scribes and Pharisees, had been reading and studying and doing the math. And they said, here we are. This is the time. Not only that, there were several things that needed to happen for Israel to rise up and become their own people again. Um, One of them was they had to have land. Well, lo and behold, in the first century, they have come back from Israel. They're living in the land. Second, they had to have a temple. Lo and behold, Herod has built them a temple. They have a temple. So they have land. They have a temple. It has been 490 years. There's only one thing that they're missing. A king. A Davidic king in the line of David. Um, So, with this in mind, everyone was walking around looking for their king. They're like, are you you excited? 
Like, yes, I'm excited. This is the generation. We are going to do this. We are going to establish Israel again as it was in the time of David. Um, All we're waiting for is our Messiah. And so these Messiahs started popping up because they believed what God had said. They believed it was their time. They weren't doing it to deceive anybody. They really did believe that I am the Messiah God has sent. Um, I am the one who's going to be Israel's king and unite them all um, and fulfill the covenant. And every time they did, they led a, a violent revolt. And they were all killed. So Jesus talks to his, uh, his, his disciples and to the people he's healing. And over and over and over again, he tells them, um, don't tell people I'm the Messiah. And there's a reason for this. Let me show you a couple different passages where this happens. Uh, Mark chapter 8, uh, he says, what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? He's talking to Peter. Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Jesus does not want bloodshed and violence. Everyone has this idea that, that God is going to come and give them retribution, destroy, kill their enemies. God has no plan to do that at all. Jesus understands the plan of God in a way that no one around him does. And so he will reveal to them that he is the Messiah after he shows them how the Messiah is supposed to work. There's another one, Mark chapter 1. Uh, he reached out his hand and he touched the man. This guy has, has leprosy and he heals him. Um, he says, are you willing? And the guy says, I am willing. He said, then be clean. Um, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell anyone about this. Jesus did not want the people to take up arms. In fact, Matthew goes out of his way to describe um, Jesus as nonviolent, non-retributive, um, not tribal in any way not divisive. Jesus is, um, Matthew describes Jesus as one who um, is constantly telling people, put your sword away. That is not how the kingdom enters into the world. That is not how peace will come into the world. It happens not through the sword and, and, and the warfare. It happens through the cross and the love of God and having the heart of God and serving the people around you, being a blessing to all nations, the way Israel was meant to be, okay? So this is the setting. This is why Jesus um, When the people are planning to kill him, that section ends. And then it says, and having knowledge, um, Jesus left because all these people are rushing up to him, claiming he's the Messiah, asking for healing. And he's healing them all. And he's like, oh, no, this is is going to get dangerous. These people are going to revolt. They're going to go home, get their weapons, and they're going to rise up, and they're all going to be killed. I don't want Romans killed. I don't want Jews killed. And he leaves. And he tells them, don't tell anyone. He just tells them all to be quiet. Okay? He's like, my time has not yet come. This is not what we're doing now. So, um... That's the first part. The second part is what this connects to. Because Matthew says, the the fact that Jesus is not telling anyone who he is yet, the fact that Jesus is keeping them from violent revolt, it means something. And he points from there to the book of Isaiah, um, one of the greatest prophets Israel ever had. And he points to Isaiah and says, this is perfectly in line with what Isaiah said was going to happen. And so then, um, here's that passage. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And, then, and so from here on out, we're, we're quoting Isaiah from verse 18 to 21. It goes like this. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. So I'm going to break this all down for you because there's several things um, There's four things in particular that Isaiah has said, and Matthew connects these things to Jesus. 
um, the fact that Jesus is not acting like other messiahs. So we're going to start off. I'm going to work my way through this list here. So the first one is that he would proclaim justice. Um, it says, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Um, Greek justice in the first century was retributive. It was, like most justice systems in the world today, it was, it was retributive, it was, it was vengeance, it was punishment. Um, that was Greek justice. Um, our system under which we live, under which most kingdoms of the world live, um, is a type of justice which is not the justice that Jesus was actually bringing. It is retributive. It is, um, it is not necessarily restorative. There has been a movement in the last really couple decades to make justice systems of the world more restorative. That is good. Um, now, um, so the justice system uh, that, that the Greeks lived by was, um, it was giving people what was owed to them. Um, you made me feel pain. I get to make you feel pain. Um, you took something from me. I'm going to take something from you. And it's more about getting even. Um, it, again, it's retributive. So um, the Jewish people and anyone who has been oppressed... Uh, for, for these kind of people, what is owed is violence. It is to pay for what they did. It is to suffer. If I suffered, you must suffer. This was justice. In the ancient world, oftentimes it is justice today. It is oftentimes what we want when someone hurts us. We want to hurt them back. We want to find some way to hurt them back. When you find yourself um, smiling when you hear about someone um, who has hurt you, suffering in some way, losing something, and you find yourself smiling in some way, that is the flesh, that is earthly, earthly justice. That is not what I would call Christ-like or Christiform justice at all. Um, the justice, so, so it says, um, he will proclaim justice to the nation. So basically, for Christ, justice is revealed in a whole different way. It's revealed to be living in such a way that both God and other people receive their proper place. It's not about bringing them down um, to your level. It's about... Um, actually bringing them up, it is about um, somehow reconciling. It is restorative. It is, it is understanding that the most important things in this world are people and God. And these things should all gather together at the table. Um, it is working towards this different mode, this restorative thing. Um, and, and we're going to talk more about this um, in a bit. Um, it's basically receiving your enemies and those who have hurt you as, as brothers and sisters, as forgiven, given a seat at the table with us. Now, we're going to go into more depth uh, in a little bit here on, on that idea. So the second thing that, that um, Matthew has connected with Isaiah and Jesus, he says, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. So there's a, um, there is a, a Greek word here for cry aloud is the word... Um, do I have any? Okay, it's the word kraugase. Everyone say kraugase. Okay, so this is a word, uh, if you read ancient texts that were written around the first century, you'll see this word used in several ways. There's kind of a theme. Um, you, can, you can find where it's used uh, to describe a, do- a barking dog, um, uh, two hens fighting. Um, I wrote a few more down. Um, uh, the croaking of a raven, or oh, this is the best one, the uproar of a discontent crowd at the theater. Who saw the thing like boo, and they're really mad about what they're seeing. Um, okay, so this is the idea. It is, it is anger at what you see. It is divisive. It is, it is sort of a threatening sort of thing. Um, 
There were regularly in the ancient theaters, um, like riots, when they saw a message come about in the, come about in the theater that they didn't like. Um, if it was like partisan, or if it was something other than what the crowd believed, they would literally riot in the theater sometimes. This actually happened all the way up until like the 1930s. There are theater riots. I've talked about it, but we should talk about that sometime. Anyways, um, so um, it is this divisive sort of tribal idea. Um, it means that, <clears throat> it basically means that Jesus was not there to cause an uproar. He's not going to be a rabble rouser. Um, we know all about sort of the quarrels of conflicting parties, right? Where we, for all the things that we are, we are not like that. <clears throat> we are not them. And we push ourselves away from them as far as we can. And we are tribal. Um, in Jesus, there is this whole other thing. It's this quiet, strong serenity of someone who seeks to conquer by love. It is not, I'm going to conquer you by, by pushing you away from me and then sort of firing arrows at you and beating you down to submission. That is not how Jesus would work. It, it would be this moving towards others. It would be this love. It would be gathering them towards themselves. It is a whole other way of, um, of bringing about peace of living in the world. Um, and when Isaiah originally wrote this, the world was tribal. You were your people, they were their people. And if you ever got a chance to, your people would do everything they could to destroy their people. And everyone in the world should be just like your people. Jesus is nothing like that. Okay? Um, the third thing we find is that it says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. So this is a very sort of poetic sort of language. Here's what he's saying. Um, a bruised reed is meant, it, that's the word there for, for broken, for not working right, for damaged. It is, uh, it, is, it is a bruised reed which is supposed to stand up straight. The reed was designed and it grows in a way that it's supposed to be strong and stand tall. A smoldering wick um, doesn't do what it was intended to do. It's not bringing any light to the room at all. Um, you might have a lamp there with this huge wick and it's burning really, really well and giving all kinds of light and then you have another lamp and you take it into the other room and it's just real dark because all that's left is like these embers glowing on it. It's just this smoldering little wick. Um, and what do you do with the, with the bruised reed? It has no point to just mow it down. It doesn't bring any beauty. It doesn't do anything. It can't be useful for any tools that you want to make. Um, the smoldering wick doesn't bring any light. They're useless. So you put them out. So you apply this idea to human beings. They're broken. Um, certain human beings we consider useless. We don't want them around. Um, they serve no purpose in our society, so what use are they to us? Um, and in the ancient world, if they didn't serve any use to you, you threw them out. There was no reason to, to preserve something that did nothing for society, that actually was a drain on society. There was no reason. But Isaiah... According to Matthew, it's talking about the Messiah. And he says, when the Messiah comes, he will not smother a smoldering wick. He will not cut down a broken reed. He will actually preserve them until the day justice is done. Until this person who is broken and hurt receives exactly what they, were all, what they never thought they could attain. A seat at the table with the successful and the failures and Jesus all together. Gathered there together. Um, this is a really powerful statement. Um, and then, oops, what did I do here? I broke it. All right, we're coming back. Um, and the fourth thing that you see is this. It says, in his name, the nations will put their hope. Um, <clears throat> so Isaiah is saying, it's not just the people of that particular tribe that will find hope in this king. It is everyone else as well. 
It is, it is, it is bigger than borders. It is bigger than groups. It is bigger than tribes. Um, all those who are not part of this troop will also be blessed by their existence, by them being there. Okay. So these are the four things that Isaiah says, and Matthew connects up to Jesus, um, that I, these are the four things that Isaiah says um, will take place. Now, something you need to know about this passage. Matthew is the only one in all of ancient writing to connect this passage to Jesus. This passage, even in, in the thousands of books that were written during the intertestamental period in the what's called like the pseudepigrapha, and then there's the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and all these things. No one has connected this passage to the Messiah. This passage was always meant to be about Israel. Always. Israel was supposed to live this way. God's people were supposed to be this way. And they had failed, and they had failed, and they had failed. And so Matthew sees Jesus as a representative of, of Israel all by himself, Succeeding everywhere that they have failed. Temptations in the wilderness. 40 days, whereas Israel is 40 years. All of it, the whole thing. All the different temptations that Jesus went through is what actually are the things that led the Israelites astray. And then here, all of the things that Israel could not do, Jesus does for them. And it's not just that. The reason Matthew connects this to Jesus is because, imagine this, Matthew sitting there with his church. Imagine us as the Matthewan church, um, which is weird because then I'm Matthew. Um, and we're, and we're, 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 I'm, I'm writing my story, and I saw Jesus, and we're thinking and we're talking out loud because these things were written in groups. Even Paul's letters were written in groups. He puts usually the names at the end of them. Um, and you're writing this letter and you say, 2,000 years from now, there's going to be a church on some mosquito-ridden peninsula somewhere. <laughs> what do they need to know? They should know how God's people have constantly failed. They should know how Jesus succeeded everywhere that they failed. And then they should know that Jesus, who has succeeded, like a pioneer going forth and, and, and settling these areas, they should know that he is calling them to walk the same path and do the same things. And actually, he has given them his name. They are Christians. They are the church. They bear the name of Christ. And so they should know that they are now the people entrusted with doing these things. That's what they should know. So you open this up. This is how you read the book of Matthew. It's, it's a letter from his church to us. So here we are. We're going to read this. There are four things that the Matthewan church wants us to do. Four things. We should be setting out to redefine justice in the light of Christ. This is what justice is. And we proclaim to the world, that is not justice. As much as you say, this is what justice is and we want justice, that is vengeance and that is retribution and that is not um, the plan of God to bring, to gather in those, the, the lost sheep, to gather them in, give them a seat at the table, to fill them and to restore them. That is not justice. That is not restoration. That is not the reconciliation of all things to God. That is simply retribution and throwing people out. So we redefine justice in the world. And all those that the world throws out, we go to and we find them and we say, hey, that was not right. That was not just. We will work on them, but I want you to know you are welcome here. And we bring them in. Um, that is how justice um, 
it's supposed to work. There's a, <clears throat> there's a, a book by a theologian named Miroslav Volf. Incredible, awesome name. Miroslav Volf. Sounds like an 80s metal band. Um, and um, he's, a, he's a theologian and philosopher. He wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And he defines how justice sort of works. Um, he, says, he says the justice of God, it, it requires both. Um, he talks, the book is a lot about judgment. Um, and in this idea of judgment, he describes it as, in order to have real true judgment, you, there must be exclusion, first off. Exclusion is defined simply as separating good from the bad and saying, hey, so we want you to know this is not right. What you did, the way that you hurt people, we are pronouncing this wrong. But ex- they are excluded so that they can then be brought in and embraced. There is no point in just embracing people. Um, it, it, it has less meaning if, if you embrace people without actually pointing out that despite these things, you are embraced. Because there are things in us that we need to hear as well. And so he says true judgment is exclusion followed by embrace. And that's what makes the justice of God so incredibly beautiful. He is telling you the things that, that you know are broken in society and saying, yes, that is wrong. What do you say we bring them back in? Exclusion and embrace. And, and in fact, he writes this and, and puts it in terms of forgiveness. And he says this, forgiveness is not a substitute for justice. Forgiving someone does not mean that you demand no change in the perpetrator and no righting of wrongs. Forgiveness provides a framework in through which the quest for properly understood justice can be fruitfully pursued. It is not real forgiveness just to let somebody walk all over you and then say, yeah, it's all good. It's okay. I forgive you. Forgiveness is, is it's much, much more holistic than that. And it's a lot more work than that. It is being honest and real about like what is right and what is wrong. What is useful in the kingdom of God? What is not? Um, what should be thrown out? And how to throw these things out while bringing the person in. This is how Jesus does this. And you can watch him. He's, he's pronouncing uncleanness, and then he says, um, but here's what you're going to do. You're going to go do these things, and then, and then we are reconciled. He creates this space and this way in, and he will not stop until they are brought in. He doesn't just let them linger out there. Um, and so the second thing, so the first thing we're doing is redefining justice. The second thing that the Matthew church wants us to do is, he says, we should have the strong serenity of those who seek to conquer by love, not division and strife. We don't go out and divide everyone up so that we can conquer them. That was the Roman way to conquer. We don't stand back here and say, they're different from us, they're different from us, they're different from us, and they're all wrong. And if someone wants to be right, they can come and be just like me. That is idolatry. That's worshiping your own self-image. Um, Real, um, real justice work is not about separating people from you necessarily. It is about moving towards them. It is not about, again, this exclusion alone. It is always about the embrace at the end. But it is not, it is not violent. It is not divisive. It is, not, um, it is always loving. It is never done with an attitude of, um, you're with them, I'm better than you. It is not tribal. It is, in fact, doing away with these tribes. What Jesus was actually doing in the end was not, was not kicking everybody out of Israel so that Israel could be there. He was walking in and pronouncing the world as now has access to Israel. And this is how we will do this. Okay, it is this whole other thing. It is open doors. The next thing, um, 
Uh, basically, we, we should see no person, no matter how much of a failure or how unwanted they are, as someone to be ignored or stamped out. The broken reed, the, um, the, the smoldering candlestick. They must be preserved. The useless in society. All those um, who have been condemned and thrown out, we draw near to them. Um, from the unborn to those condemned to die in prisons, from the severely mentally handicapped to the homeless to the addicted, um, to those whom you just simply do not like, those who have failed, um, those whom society finds no use in, um, the kingdom of God does, and the kingdom of God seeks to bring them together to the table and give them hope. And the last thing that, that Matthew and Church wants us to do is he says that we should be a people who bring hope to the nations, whether they believe in Jesus or not. They should, they should benefit from us existing. Any neighborhood in which a church is planted um, should benefit from that church, should see them as like, no, they are helpful to our society. They help bring justice. They stand alongside of us um, when we are calling for change. They are with us when we, um, when we are suffering. They're there for us. When we are going through hard things, um, they put their arm around us and walk with us. Um, I think their beliefs are crazy, but I'm glad they're here kind of thing, you know, like the church should be this beacon of light and hope and everyone everywhere should benefit from the existence of the church in the world. Now, okay, so I'm going to show you something fascinating. There is this letter that we have uh, from a couple years after John died. And what's the guy's name? I want to pronounce it right. The guy's name is Diogenetus. Um, It is a letter. We don't know who wrote it. It was written to a man called Diogenetus and it is about the Christians. Apparently, in the first century, Diogenes had written a letter to this mystery person and said, hey, who are these Christians I keep hearing about? Who are they? Um, this thing, Christianity, this is spreading rapidly. And I'm, I'm seeing them, I'm meeting them everywhere. These Christians. Who are they? What are they doing here? The letter that he gets back from this, from this mystery person Here's what it says. Um, it's a rather long letter. Here's chapter five of the letter. Um, it has this description of who the Christians are. And it says this. The Christians busy, them, busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They live in their own native lands, but they live as aliens. For every foreign country is to them as their native land, and every native land is as their foreign country. They marry and have children, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They share their tables with everyone, but not their beds. (laughs) They, They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of everything. They are treated outrageously, but behave respectfully. They are mocked and blessed in return. When, when they do good, they are attacked. And when they are attacked, they rejoice as if being given new life. Now, This guy thinks the Christians are crazy because of the way they live. And the way he describes the way that the Christians live causes the people who are not Christians to be like those idiots, and it causes us to be like, heck yeah. (laughs) That is who we are. However, were this letter to be written today, Diogenetus writes, hey, I live in Brooklyn. Uh, I don't know anything about these Christians, I want you to write back and tell me who they are. What would that letter look like today? I would argue everything that this says would literally be opposite. 
All of it. We idolatize, we, we, we idolatize the, the lands in which we live. Um, we, when we are somehow, when we declare persecution, we lash out and try to destroy the people persecuting. We, all of it. We can't control our temper when someone says even something a little bit bad to us. We rarely, as a global church, at least in America, uh, we rarely do anything helpful for society that people can, can even point out and say, yes, that was actually beginning to end. That was good. Usually it's a power grab. I would argue, had this letter been written today, it would look nothing like this. But in the first century, this is how the church looked. This is what it was. And the reason for this is because the early church realized that where Israel had failed, where Jesus had succeeded, they would succeed. They would live in this way. They would be a blessing to all the nations outside their doors. This is how they would live. So right after this, right after Matthew says, connects this writing of Isaiah to Jesus and the church, he puts a story now of what this looks like. So the Pharisees bring this guy to Jesus, and, he's, and he's, um, he needs healing. It says they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Um, oftentimes in the first century, um, you'll notice Jesus doesn't cast out a demon here or anything like that. Um, he just heals the man. Oftentimes, um, these kind, there were certain kinds of ailments that were considered to be um, connected to spiritual warfare. Blindness and muteness was um, definitely at the top of the list. Um, anything that took away, like because... I've talked about this before. The, the way the eyes they were believed to function came from a light inside of you. That's how they believed they functioned. And so if that light had gone out, it was some sort of spiritual possession, right? So um, this is how they viewed it. So they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And the people were astonished. And here we go again. Could, they said, could this be the son of David? Oh, no, they're rising up again. Okay, so this happens. There's a broken reed. Right? There is a smoldering, flickering candlestick. This guy is useless. To them, he's demon-possessed. Um, he is not helpful for their community. Jesus doesn't throw him out. Jesus welcomes him in, goes up to him, makes him whole again, heals him. And then there's this huge um, argument that ensues. We're not going to go through the whole thing. I'm going to leave it for you to read. Um, but basically, they walk up to him and they say, they accuse him of, of working for the enemy, working for the devil, um, working um, against the will of God. And there's this whole long list of accusations and Jesus strikes back and says, That's, if, if I'm working for the devil, why would I cast out his demons and blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's like this sort of thing where they're going back and forth here. Um, the whole point of this that I see is this. Oftentimes when you start doing the work of God, when you actually start getting your hands dirty and getting in there and, and, and doing real justice work, very religious people will say you are working against God. You, you will see this. It happens a lot. Um, they will call you a heretic. They will say God doesn't care about the poor. They will misinterpret Jesus to say that Jesus didn't care about the poor. They will say things that will basically allow suffering to continue because it doesn't matter because one day we're all going to die and fly away. And so nothing in this world matters. That is not anything remotely similar to anything the early Christians believed. 
And when your beliefs about what the Messiah was going to do, when your beliefs about what God plans to do, when they get off kilter, you will end up attacking people doing the right things. Jesus has felt this. Many people who have done um, intensely beautiful, good healing work in this world in the name of Christ have been, have been stood up against by very religious people, Christian leaders. This is normal. Because here's what happens. When you, when you do something different from what they are doing, even if it has nothing to do with them, maybe you don't even know they exist, but just by you doing something different that they're not doing, there's this intrinsic offense that they take because they see you doing it and they assume that it is a critique of their work, even though oftentimes it's not. Maybe you've even felt this in your family, in your house, where you have gone maybe a different direction than the rest of your family and they are deeply offended even though you did nothing to offend them because you have decided to follow a different path. It has, they have taken this as you think my path is wrong. And they take it as offense and they lash out at you. Just know that when people start lashing out at you in the work that you're doing, oftentimes you're on the right path. Oftentimes that is when you can look and say, this is exactly what the apostles experienced. This is what Jesus experienced. When very religious people all around them were attacking everything that they were doing. Yet at the same time, they were bringing healing. Because Jesus stands up against these people and he says, he says look, I healed this guy. How could something so beautiful as healing and wholeness be somehow a threat to the kingdom of God? This is what God plans on doing. This little thing I just did, he's going to do for all of us. This is God's intention for the world. How is it that you could say I'm working against the things of God? It exposes sort of their insecurities and the things they don't necessarily understand. And then Jesus ends with this one passage that seems out of place, and it's fascinating. He says this, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, what about all that talk about Jesus not being divisive? Why is he saying this? Whoever is not with me is against me. Why is he dividing people like this? Okay, so this is a very, very rabbinical thing. I want to show you another passage um, that completely contradicts this, <laughs> that Jesus said. It goes like this, and it's in Luke chapter 9. It says, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. But like last week you said, whoever's not with us is against us. Like just, and he's like, that's right. It's rabbinical. Think about it. And you're supposed to dwell on it and think about it. This happens a lot uh, in scriptures. There's a passage in, in, oh, here's another one. Mark chapter 9. It says, whoever's not against us is for us. Now, um, in the book of Proverbs, you see something like this. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. The next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Look, which one is it? I, I need... If you could just, we're children of the enlightenment. If you could just lay it all out in a nice list, I could just believe it and be on my way. <laughs> and you are supposed to sit and ponder this. William Barclay, um, uh, a lot of people have spent a lot of time like pondering this and all the beautiful meanings they've pulled out of this, okay? Um, my favorite is William Barclay's when he says this. He says, whoever is not with me is against me is a test that we ought to apply to ourselves. Um, so basically, um, Hold on. 
I got way off my notes here. Uh, so basically, you're supposed to ask yourself the question, am I truly on the Lord's side? Am I personally trying to um, sort of shuffle through life in this cowardly state? Um, am I, this is a question you're supposed to ask about yourself. Am I with God or am I against God? Am I, or am I just sort of neutral? Am I doing anything um, to assist in the establishment and the spreading of the kingdom of God in this world? To make thing, or am I just letting God do all the work and I'm just going to hang out and be silent? Keep my head down and run. And then he says, he takes the other verse and he says, whoever is not against us is for us is a test that we ought to apply to others. Um, in other words, are you the kind of person that just runs out and you want to know where everybody stands and where they believe before you decide whether or not what they're doing is good or bad? You see people on the other side of the aisle doing good things and you assume, like the Pharisees did, yeah, but the only reason they're doing that is because they want this and that's bad. You, you judge their motives. You judge um, everything about what they're doing as already negative and evil. And Barclay says, um, so when you look at yourself, you should judge your own, your own actions harshly and ask yourself, am I following Christ? When you judge the, the attitude of others, assume, assume the best in people. Um, when you see people doing good things, applaud them, maybe join them. But what if I don't agree with them? What has that got to do with anything right now? They're doing something good. Join them. Well, people might associate me with them. I, I know, I, Jesus was always worried that he was going to be associated with sinners. It doesn't matter. You're protecting a reputation that is an idol of yours, that you have spent your life making sure it doesn't get tarnished so that you can uphold an image to the world that you are somehow righteous and good and holy and you've got it all together. And you know inside of yourself it's a lie and you're working really hard to uphold this when actually if you would give up your reputation, um, if you would give up how people see you, you could actually do kingdom work in the world. Because while you're protecting your, your, your reputation, you're forgetting the fact that Jesus was stripped naked and beaten and his beard ripped out and hung on a cross to bring about the healing and salvation of others. Didn't care about his reputation. Regularly was accused of being a drunkard and cohorting with sinners. Cohorting? Yeah. (laughs) Look, there is an attitude which we as Christians are supposed to have that we have forgotten that we have lost. It is found in this capturing the heart and mind of Christ. Um, We're going to take communion. Our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and spread it on the room. And um, let's take some time and let's ponder all of this. Shall we? Um, the places where God's people have failed in the past, now that we, ha- now that we have a, a new Lord and King to follow, um, these things can be done. We can live in this way. And where you fail, there is grace, and, and you are giving, being welcomed back to the table again to try over. Um, but we must try with everything that we have. Um, for those of you who need prayer, those of you who uh, are seeking any kind of um, guidance, um, healing, whatever. Spend some time um, with prayer with the people around you. If, if, you need, if you'd like to pray with someone else, um, a representative of the church or something, through these doors on the left, there is a prayer room right there where somebody would, would love to pray with you and listen um, and, and take these things to, to God in prayer. So why don't we take some time and, and we're going to take communion together. And, uh, and let's ponder... Um, 
our role in this world. How are we demonstrating justice? How are we demonstrating God's people? If that letter were to be written again today, what would it look like? If it was written about you, what would it look like? Let's ponder that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this place and these people. I ask that you would um, provide us not just with knowledge but with wisdom and what this means for us in our particular situation. Many of us need help forgiving other people. Many of us need forgiveness ourselves from other people. Soften hearts. Bind us together. Restore relationships. Reconcile us together. Um, Many people here have been judged harshly by peers or family members or whatever, I ask that you would give them hope, that uh, you would give them light and joy and um, give them peace in their situation. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen.